Welcome to the Get Healthier Podcast with Rena Jadhav, who's on a quest to uncover breakthroughs and cures in living longer, healthier, and happier. Genetic testing, stem cells, rattling, talking to Silicon Valley geniuses and the best doctors in the world about the hottest products and programs to make you live an amazingly joyful life. Are you ready? Now, here's your host, Rena. Hi, folks. It's Rena Jadhav here, and today is a book masterclass. Ta-da! We are talking about turbo metabolism with Dr. Pankaj Bidge, eight weeks to a new you, preventing and reversing diabetes, obesity, heart disease, and other metabolic diseases by treating the causes. What a revolutionary concept. Welcome, Dr. Bidge. Thank you, Rina. It's a pleasure to be on your show. I'm a big fan of yours, and I can't even believe that I'm talking to you this afternoon. Oh, gosh. Thank you so much. I'm honored that you're here. You're making time. You're a practicing physician. Tell our listeners and our viewers a little bit about your background and why did you write this book? Well, I'm, I'm an internal medicine doctor with an interest in obesity and metabolic diseases. You know, incidentally, that's the majority of what internal medicine doctors see these days is obesity and its related metabolic diseases such as high blood pressure, type 2 diabetes, heart problems, strokes, osteoarthritis, sleep apnea. I mean, these handful of conditions make up 80% of what we see people for. And so this is the bread and butter of what we take care of day in and day out. And for the last decade or so, I've, I've been very passionate about trying to figure out what are the root causes? Why are we seeing this mushrooming epidemic of these diseases that are just eating up our society, not just socially, but in terms of productivity and economically as well? And that's why I wrote the book, because I felt like I, I, in my regular practice, I didn't feel like I have enough time to really go into all the details of what I think are the root causes and what people can do about it. And I wanted to have all, not all, but a lot of my thoughts in one place so that people can have something to refer to readily. And it's funny, it actually started off with my just putting down some ideas in, you know, in handouts and Word documents. And before I knew it, it all came together into this beautiful book that I was able to find a publisher to publish and the rest is history. And I have to say, I love the book and I love your style of writing. It's very easy to read. It's certainly not been written for other MDs and PhDs. It's been written for people like myself that are trying to get our health back under control. Um, I love how you've got sort of a section, you know, rules to live by and then sort of bullets around your amazing body. So it's not only something that you're learning as a reader, but you're being given almost like cheat sheets in the chapters in, in terms of how to execute some of these things. So I love it. I, great job with writing the book. Um, let's talk about the very first chapter, sort of, you know, why turbo metabolism and what is it in for me? Yeah, so you always have to start with the why, right? We were talking earlier about life passions and why people do the things that they do. Whether they're good things or bad things, you know, everybody has very strong reasons. And similarly, when you start to embark on a journey moving towards health, you know, uh, to be very honest, it's a ton of work to change how you've been living, you know, your life for 30, 40, 50 years. And the very first step is to think about why, right? Why Why did I get here and why do I want to change? What is it that I'm looking for? and ask that question over and over again so we can really peel the onion and get to the core of what motivates each of us as an individual. 
And then once we have that why very clear, right, the what, where, when, and how just fall right into place because the why is the biggest hurdle. Why do I need to do this? Find the reasons why, get to the core motivations, and then build on that. Absolutely. I think one of the reasons we raid the fridge at 3 a.m., and I can speak for myself, is, you know, combination of maybe stress, maybe poor nutritional eating in the morning. And to your point, when I got sick, I really had to stop and say, I'm going to have to change pretty dramatically. So those of you who know my story know I went without gluten, dairy, soy, corn, alcohol, caffeine, sugar for 18 months, and I still haven't touched alcohol or caffeine. And that's not an easy change to make unless you have a very strong why. And I, I love the fact that you start this book by saying you've got to know your why, and you've got to know your why that's going to be stronger than your impulses. It's going to be stronger than the temptations out there. So when a temptation kind of smacks you across your face when the brownie kind of stares at you, you stare right back and say, nope, you're not winning today because I need to live and I have a lot more exciting life ahead of me. Um, so I love this chapter. I actually specifically like this. Um, Every day, an adult body produces 300 billion new cells, completely renewing itself every seven years. We forget that our body knows how to heal and knows how to fix itself. And knowing that, recognizing that, in fact, you're a whole new person seven years out gives you such power over yourself, right? It's all is not lost. So when you're sick and if you're out there, you're listening, you've been told you've got diabetes or heart issues, all is not lost. Am I right? Am I right, Dr. Vinch? Absolutely. This is so true. I mean, and that's the most miraculous thing about this, this physical body that we've been granted is that it has an innate ability to rejuvenate, to regenerate, to revitalize, and to recreate itself every moment of every day. But we need to be aware of that and then create the right conditions for it to happen. And oftentimes, the reason why we stay in the same state is that we keep repeating the same behavior. So the body wants to heal itself, but in a sense, of course, unintentionally, we are the ones that are getting in the way of that healing. And as soon as we get out of the way or realize what we were doing that was causing the problem, we stop doing that behavior, the default setting is for the body to go back to a state of health and vitality. So by default, it's not that we're falling apart and breaking down. By default, we're getting back to optimal as long as we know to get out of the way. All right, chapter one, metabolic syndrome, the root cause of chronic disease. Now we know there's over 100 million Americans suffering from chronic illness. I was one of them. And we know that chronic illness is probably how majority of Americans will end up passing away. So clearly we wanna get a hold of what this is. Let's start with what exactly is metabolic syndrome? Because not everyone understands this term. Right, so I wanna take a step back and say that Metabolism is about energy delivery, right? Metabolism is about the way energy is generated and delivered to every cell in the body. And we need that energy to be able to function. And so metabolic syndrome is when that energy delivery mechanism is impaired, right? In a physical sense, you'll see that if you walk around, you can go to Disneyland and just look around and you see the constellation of increase in belly fat. So you see the guy or gal with, with the big belt size, probably they have high blood pressure, 
their blood sugar is probably high. If you brought a meter to Disneyland and started testing people, right? Their triglycerides are probably high, which is one form of the cholesterol. And the HDL or the good cholesterol is low. So you can look at someone and if they have an increase in waist circumference or, or they, you know, their waist to hip ratio is more than what it should be, most likely they, they are going to meet all those other criteria, which you'll need a blood sugar measuring machine and a blood pressure cuff and a blood tester to actually find out. But it's, it's very easy to actually diagnose. And what's turbo metabolism? So I coined that term, and by what by that, what I mean is that that energy delivery mechanism is working in its optimal condition, much like a performance car, right? Mm-hmm. It's you talk about you know a, a race car and it goes into turbo mode and it can get ahead of all the other race cars. Why? Because the mechanism of delivery of fuel to its engine is very efficient, and the delivery of that energy from the engine to the tires where the rubber meets the road doesn't have any inefficiencies. It's not producing a lot of excess exhaust or heat. All the energy is being delivered and utilized in a very energy efficient way to propel that car forward and it's gonna win the race every time. And so you, you can look at performance athletes that are in a very good state of tune-up, people that participate in the Olympics, and you can look at their numbers and what we just talked about, the criteria for metabolic syndrome, and they're not gonna meet any of those because their energy delivery system is working optimally. That's turbo metabolism. In fact, I love this. I'm going to read this line. The root cause underlying the problem is the excessive calorie dense <clears throat> brownies, nutrient poor, toxic stuff masquerading as food, which essentially blocks the insulin receptors on the muscle and the liver and the blood vessels. So you're basically saying in this chapter that if you're going to live on crap, you're going to end up diseased and sick. Is that kind of the gist of it? Yeah, you're going to become what you eat and you're going to become what you eat ate, right? So a big part of it is food and, and you know, building on what you were saying earlier. Yeah, I think as the medical community, we've done a disfavor too in that we have helped propagate the notion that, hey, we don't know what's causing this problem. It's just the way it is and you're going to have to live with it. And guess what? It's also irreversible. Well, none of that's true. We know what causes it and it's reversible because if we know what's causing the problem, you remove those causes, you get them out of the way, you can actually reverse the disease. And we've seen that now over and over and over again. And that's the new paradigm that these chronic diseases that we call chronic diseases, at one point there was a very first day when someone had this disease. It wasn't a chronic disease to them that day. It was their first day of having it. So it was an acute illness at that point. But they didn't get the right message to change the cause, to get rid of the cause. They kept doing the same behavior. And that acute disease became a chronic disease. And they just kept getting loaded with the notion that this is irreversible. Like you said, this is the way life is going to be. Here you can take these medicines, you can have these shots, but there's nothing that we can do to reverse it which was just not true. And now we're finding out that you could have type two diabetes, for example, for two, three, five, six, seven years, and you can actually reverse it. I've got so many patients that have helped do that. And in the process, they've lost 80, 90 pounds. They've gotten rid of blood pressure medicines. They've, they can run marathons. They can participate in activities that couldn't participate in before. And you know, essentially they got their life back all just from knowing what was causing the problem 
and then doing something about it. Instead of masking the symptoms, which is unfortunately, I think what gets treatment wise is let's mask the symptoms. And I love that you've written a book about let's not mask the symptoms. Let's figure out the root cause and address the root cause. And so then we don't have to be dependent on insulin shots for the rest of our lives. Um, for those who are saying, listening or watching and saying, hmm, I wonder if I am at risk for metabolic syndrome, you've actually got a really nice table. Would you like to share? I and mean, you've got five things you talk about as being a way for someone to figure out if they are at risk for metabolic syndrome. What are those? Well, the, the, the criteria are what we just mentioned. The biggest one is waist circumference, right? So if you have a big belly and you find that your waist size is increasing as you go, that's a pretty good sign that you probably have metabolic syndrome. You could get a simple blood test to look at your fasting glucose. You could look at your fasting cholesterol panel, look at your triglycerides and HDL level. These are simple blood tests that are done in doctor's offices every day. They're part of your annual physical already. You could look at your blood pressure if that's high, right? That's something that you can even test at home. And then in the book, I've given another list of additional tests that you might consider that I think are important in, in getting a gauge of what, how your metabolism is. Things like vitamin D is in there, things like uh, cardiosensitive uh, C-reactive protein that looks at inflammation in the body is in there. And there's a few other tests that I've mentioned in the tables in the book. Absolutely, and you've given a lot more details in terms of what those measurements should be. So chapter two, a holistic approach and the treatment and cure for diabetes. Tell us a little bit about this chapter. Yeah, so I, I really, I, I start off with why, and, I, and the second chapter is talking about the holistic approach because we really need to approach it from a mind-body perspective, right? You can look at someone who is overweight or obese or has type 2 diabetes, and you say, oh, this person is has this problem because they're fat and they eat too much, but there's an underlying problem that is up here, right? So obesity, or we talk about the term diabetes, which is a combination of diabetes and obesity. This is, this is a mind problem. So what's going on up in your mind really matters. You, you talk, you look at people who are overweight and obese, and a lot of them have had history of some sort of insecurity or abuse in the past, I mean, you and I were talking earlier and we talked about how, you know, we sometimes will raid the refrigerator at three in the morning when we're stressed, when we're not sleeping, when we're worried about something, right? We all have rough meetings or you have an unpleasant interaction with someone at work or at home. And by default, right, if you have an apple and a cookie sitting there, most of us are going to go for the cookie when we're feeling stressed. So there's a whole mind-body pathway because of which this is happening and we have to address that first and look at what's happening up here because if we can fix up here the body will simply follow. Tell us a little bit about the chakra system because I'm a huge believer in it when I meditate I have um, just some wonderful experiences with my chakra and my energies but for those who are out there I think it's always a wonderful treat to hear a trained MD talking about whether it's you know Vedic sciences or Vedanta or chakra system. So talk a little bit about what's your perspective for those of us that are very intrigued by how that impacts our health. Well, in a very broad sense, right, this, this chakra system was described thousands of years ago. And frankly, I hadn't really paid much attention or learned much about it growing up or even in medical school training as a Western science-minded physician. Uh, but it was much later that I came across 
uh, how much overlap there actually is in what this ancient science was talking about 8,000 years ago and what scientists have learned more recently. So in a very broad sense, you know, the, there's seven chakras in the body. They're roughly aligned along the spine. Again, this is very abstract. You could, you could cut somebody open and you're not going to see any spinning wheels of energy. Uh, but uh, essentially, the lower chakras are the base chakras that have to do with security and safety and procreation. So we have a chakra that's right at the sacrum. We have one sort of in the mid-abdomen. We have one right above the belly button. So this is a lower part of the body, and these have to do with safety and security. And they're also known as the root chakras because, again, we root ourselves to the ground to be safe and secure. And as we rise higher up, we get into the heart chakra that has to do with connection with people outside of ourselves, with our living harmoniously with our environment. We have a throat chakra that's about speech and speaking our own truth. And then we get higher up into what's called the third eye. And that's the site of intuition and connection with something that might be more powerful than us. And so I took that framework and started thinking, how do we apply that to you know, the modern anatomical, physiological, modern medicine, what we learn in science. And I was just astonished to see the overlap because now we know that we have a triune brain. We have a reptilian part of the brain. We have the midbrain. And then we have the prefrontal cortex that is there in the most evolved animals such as humans. And the reptilian brain is all about safety and security, right? If I'm a rattlesnake or a lizard, all I care about is I'm going to get food. I want to be safe. And I want to make baby rattlesnakes, right? So you can think about the four Fs I talk about, uh, fight or flight, feeding, and fornication. These are our basic survival uh, functions that we need. And these are part of the reptilian brain. And these are exactly what the root chakras talk about. Mm -hmm. And then I took a third parallel. You look at my Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Mm -hmm. Abraham Maslow described what our hierarchy of needs are. And at the, you can think about it as a pyramid. And the base needs, the most basic needs, fundamental needs, are to be safe and secure. And once those needs are met, we look into the higher needs of making friends and having connections with other people and having respect and status in society. And once those needs are met, then we go to the highest needs, which are our needs <clears throat> to connect with something above ourselves. And this is a natural process of evolution. So you look at the chakra system, you look at the triune brain, talking about the reptilian, the mammalian, and the human brain, and you look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And I thought, oh my God, <laughs> you know, these guys knew 8,000 years ago what we're just starting to unravel and describe in the last century. And how it all comes together, it just blew my mind. And this was, this was one of the most astonishing, fascinating things that I learned in my research as I was writing this book. I think it's brilliant how you connected the dots between these three very disparate um, messages out there that, you know, one's 5,000, 8,000 years old, and then the other two are relatively newer between Maslow, et cetera. Uh, I love that you brilliantly connected those dots and said, my God, they're all kind of saying the same thing. Exactly. And um, I created my own little pyramid. Um, you know, I love your pyramid too. Circa 2018. And my pyramid really maps the way I healed. And I feel like we've completely misunderstood what health is. And I've tried to communicate what I've learned about health through my pyramid. And my pyramid, the base is calm, right? That's the base of my pyramid. 
And what I say is if you're not calm, you can eat all the kale you want. It's not going to matter because right. if you're in that flight or fright or whatever mode of just despair or anger or sadness or um, just stress, which of course, as we know, kills, then all those other wonderful things that everyone keeps throwing at us, you know, eat your multivitamins and juice your kale, it right. really doesn't matter. And um, I love, in fact, I'm going to share a little bit from your book again. You've got a facts and fallacies section in this chapter. And you talk about, you know, the statement, you can cure diabetes today by going on a diet. It's a fallacy uh, because you say that dieting is temporary and fattish and diets die. And we know that. We know that over 80% of dieters gain more weight a year after they, they go out, out of their diet. And you talk about the fact that you can fix your body without attention to the mind. And that, again, is a fallacy. Right. So I think what you're arguing for, and please tell us a little bit more about this, is that you've got to fix your mind and you have to have a healthier relationship with your food if you're trying to address diabetes. And no doctor ever talks about that. Am I right? That is so true. I mean, and we talk about things like work-life balance and stress management and and they're just scratching the surface of it really it's about harmony it's about being harmonious in uh with living in harmony with our environment but also living in harmony with ourselves but once we're living in harmony with the people around us with the living things and the non-living things around us and we're in harmony with ourselves that we're living our lives in integrity where we say what we think and we do what we say everything is lined up that is the fertile ground for healing and growth and and you if you really think about it how many people are living in harmony you look around and there's so much conflict and disagreement and ego motivated uh competition amongst people and even for the smallest little things i mean i can look outside in the parking lot and i'll probably see someone arguing with another person about a parking spot, from that to all the way to international conflict, right? There's just abject disharmony all around us. And that forms the basis for disease. That forms the basis for whether it's metabolic disease we're talking about or cancer, or we were talking about autoimmune disease earlier. It's all about disharmony. And when we have that disharmony, we don't have good energy flow. We don't have good prana flow. We don't have good transfer of energy through the chakras, through the different levels in Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And it's like we're uncoordinated. And the right hand doesn't agree with what the left hand is doing. Of course, the body's going to break down. So the first step is to work on the mind and create harmony. And, and it has to be each one of us one at a time. The best thing that I can do for the universe, for my family, for the my community, for the people around me, for my neighbors, for my colleagues, is to take really good care of myself. Because once I do that, then I'm, I'm a good citizen and I'm living in harmony and I'm, I'm in a position to then help others and improve the people around me. You know, you mentioned uh, violence and anger, and we know that gun violence in America is at an all-time high. We know that anger and stress has sort of become almost expected in our day-to-day -day lives. And there was a conversation, we're going to do a little detour before we dive into chapter three, but I've been dying to have this conversation with someone, and hey, here you are. So we're going to have a little chat as to what do you think. I was on a walk with a friend, and I was arguing for the fact that I think the reason for seeing so much violence and so much anger is because of the type of food we're eating. 
So this is going back to the um, Sattvic food versus Tamsic food versus Rajic food. I had listened to a video on the kinds of foods, again, back to this 8,000-year-old science that had divided foods based on what you should eat at what stage in your life and at what point in time. And they had said that there are foods that actually keep you calm and balanced. And there are foods that actually give you kind of energy and power and anger. And then there are foods that, you know, really have no value and they just kind of bring you down. And so it's okay to take a little bit of the downer foods as long as you're keeping in balance the other two foods. But the moment you've got an imbalance of what you're taking in, your body is going to behave exactly like the food that you're consuming. And if you look, uh, Dr. Vidge, at the food we are consuming, even if it's organic, it's frozen, it's packaged, it's been processed. So the way, by the original definition, it's all toxic, it's all very acidic and anger creating. Do you believe in that at all? Absolutely. I mean, going back to what we were talking about earlier, you know, you, you become what you eat and you're taking in the uh, the properties, the qualities, or as in Sanskrit, they say the sanskaras mm -hmm. of the food that you consume. And if you're having a bunch of uh, food that that is coming with violent energy in itself or the way it was prepared, you know, you're taking in those sanskaras and you're going to behave in that way. And, and, and this is very well known that you can actually take someone who has an anger problem or someone, a kid that has attention deficit disorder, and you remove certain things from their diet and you include certain other things from their diet, their behavior will completely change. Absolutely. Right? So, and for one example that comes to mind is, is a yellow dye, it, which is a synthetic uh, chemical artificially produced in a factory chemical that correlates with behavior problem in children. That's and it's a shame that we continue to have those types of chemicals in our you know, multicolored, fluorescent, neon, orange, pink, purple. M&M's. <laughs> kids' All cereals, right? They put these cereals at kids' eye level. Cereals, yes. And, and you know, it's Coffee being marshmallows, presented as kid-friendly food, but it's not going to make your kid very friendly after they consume that. I mean, there's a, it's a fact when people say, you know, my kid gets really hyper when they have this candy, and I think it's the sugar. Well, maybe it's the sugar. Maybe it's the color. Maybe exactly. it's something else that's in the candy. Not just it's the sugar. A preservative, exactly. Yes. Exactly, and um, there's several parents that I've spoken with where they've talked to me about their kids having ADD, needing extra help, and I've recommended to all of them, why don't you try a local diet, seasonal, organic, from the farmer's market for one week. Just do it for five days, not even seven. Do Monday to Friday, nothing out of a package. Purchase it, cook it yourself, mother's mm -hmm. love, and feed your child for five days and see if you notice a difference on day six and seven. And if you don't go back to your packaged foods, but if you do, at least you'll have your answer. And at that point, you as a parent have to make that very difficult decision as to how am I going to prioritize my time? Because right. unfortunately, Dr. Vish, we're living in a society where we have changed the priority of self-care, health, um, calm balance and we've instead prioritized ambition aggression winning and so then where we prioritize our time is for those things and then of course what pays the price a heavy price is our health so th this is great 
All right, chapter three, the nuts and bolts of getting started. So what are the nuts and bolts of getting started? Well, uh, getting started, you have to really take an inventory of where you are when you're getting started with anything, right? What do I have? What are we dealing with? We're looking at starting right here and our destination is over there. And so what do we need? Let's take a look in the kitchen pantry. What do I have in my kitchen pantry? What do I have in my refrigerator? If there's a bunch of garbage in my refrigerator, in my kitchen pantry, the types of foods that we're talking about earlier that are really not even foods. They're considered as edible substances that we bought at the store that are processed and loaded with toxins and chemicals and junk. The first step is probably going to be to take out the trash because you can't really make room for the things that you need in there until you take out the unnecessary stuff that's taking up space. Can you give some examples of the taking out of the trash, please? Because you've done a great job in the book. Just some examples. Well, we talked about the colored cereals. We, we can talk about cookies and desserts and, and you know processed foods, probably processed meats. You know, the, my book has a very strong plant-based tilt, although I'm not strictly propagating a vegan diet or anything, but I think most health-conscious people would agree that having a plant strong uh, armamentarium of friends in your food is going to be a good thing that can help boost your immune system and give you the necessary vitamins and minerals and micro and macronutrients that you need. So taking out processed food, junk foods, a lot of your cookies, um, desserts, if you have, you know, uh, caramel filled chocolate where there's lots of junk food right now in the holidays everywhere. Mm -hmm. uh, Ho-hos and Twinkies and, you know, cookies probably need to go out. Ice cream, most of it needs to go out, especially if you're trying to embark on a, on a health journey. And that's how you'll make the space for the stuff that does need to be there, whether it's, you know, lots of different colorful fresh fruits and vegetables, things that you can build a salad with, lots of nuts and seeds, things like that are loaded with antioxidants like onions and garlic. And again, we need to find out what our own superfoods are because we're all unique individuals. So that would be one part of getting started. The other part would be to go get tested and see where we are in terms of metabolic syndrome versus turbo metabolism, where we are on that spectrum so that we can make the necessary adjustments. All right, we're going to talk about two of the most important controversial topics that nobody's going to want to listen to, but we're going to do it anyways. The first is alcohol. You have a very clear take on alcohol that um, I'm sure a lot of people are going to Google and say, but Dr. Fitch, look what it says. It says it's good for me. All right, you're pretty clear that alcohol, even in low doses, causes breast cancer. Tell us, why is alcohol on the trash list? Alcohol is in the trash list because it's a metabolic poison, no matter how you look at it. I'm, and I have a really hard just time justifying alcohol as a health food on any account. I mean, you hear about red wine having resveratrol, which was shown in mice and rats to increase their lifespan. But to in the tests that were done to test resveratrol in mice and rats, to have that quantity of resveratrol in your, in your diet from wine, uh, I forget the number, but it was something like 700 glasses of wine a day. Exactly. Uh, exactly. It was so, silly. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, it, it lowers it lowers your inhibitions to do and say things that you wouldn't otherwise do or say, and also eat foods that you would probably be more careful with. So you have a couple of you know glasses of wine and, or a couple of beers, and guess what? After that, it's it's free for all. And yes, it's a metabolic toxin. You look at metabolic priority. Your body stores fat. Your body can store sugar 
because it gets converted into fat. Your body can use protein. Again, some of it will get converted to fat and sugar and get burned and the rest will get stored, but it doesn't know what to do with alcohol. Mm. So alcohol, all of the alcohol is going to get stored as fat first. So if you're trying to lose weight or get fat out of your liver and your pancreas so that they can work properly and reverse your type 2 diabetes, and you have um, a glass of wine, uh, a cracker, a cheese cracker, uh, you have a bagel with butter on it, and you have a piece of uh, a Skittle, guess what's going to get have to be handled first by the body? Because there's no place to store it. It's the alcohol. Mm. which means you're taking your metabolism away from its task of dealing with all those other things that are coming in because it has to get rid of the alcohol first. And if you're not running a marathon after drinking a glass of wine, guess what? That, where that alcohol is all going to go. It's going to get converted to fat. Fatty and liver. And that, that right there is, is one of the reasons we've got a fatty liver crisis that's not talked about enough. Uh, and yeah, Dr. Vijay, I hate to break this to you, but after drinking that much wine, no one's going for a marathon. Exactly right. You're going and, straight and alcohol is a carcinogen. Alcohol, even in the smallest quantity, mm -hmm. <coughs> does promote the growth of cancer cells. One last controversial, why is dairy on the list? Because, hey, Dr. Vij, don't we need probiotics? Isn't dairy going to help me with my bones? Yeah, so that's the story that we've been told for 100 years, and we have a very strong lobby behind dairy. But you know, what we're not being told is that 80% of the population is lactose intolerant. So a lot of the gas and bloating and constipation or diarrhea that you might have could be because of the ice cream that you just had. That's number one. Number two, dairy or milk in the way that it's produced now is not the same as our grandparents' time when my grandma had her own cow in the backyard who had a name and she was, you know, fed grass and taken very good care of. And now we have these dairy industries. You can drive down I-5 and you see, you know, thousands and thousands of cows lined up and they're not being fed what they're even designed to be eating. They're being fed this commercial uh, feed. It's called CAFO, Commercial Agriculture Feed Operations, where they're mm -hmm. essentially kept in a factory and they're they're given injections to keep them pregnant year round so that they keep lactating and you get something like 5,000 gallons of milk from a cow, which is totally unnatural. And their breasts, their teeth are connected to these machines that are mechanically milking them. And, and as a result, they may get infected. So they're also putting antibiotics in their, in their feed as well. And, but in spite of that, they get infected and, and this machine doesn't know whether it's getting milk or pus and all of that's getting homogenized into the product that's making its way into its store. Yes, it gets pasteurized, it gets boiled. So you kill the bacteria, but you're taking in a little bit of pus with that too. So it's not the same as mother's milk, right? So humans are designed to have human milk, which could come from your mom. But if you're 50 years old like me, right, I'm, I'm unlikely to get milk from my mom anymore. And I don't think I want the milk from another animal. Just like I don't want to drink dog's milk or cat's milk or mouse milk or tiger milk or bear milk. You know, I don't want to be drinking the bodily secretions of another animal. It, it makes such logical sense when you put it this way. And yet we've been brainwashed by wonderful ad campaigns. And so we have blindly followed 
what what the marketing dollars have tried to convince us of. So for and someone, it just doesn't correlate when you look at bone health. You look at osteoporosis. You, what do you recommend? I know the highest is in countries with higher dairy consumption. Yes. So what do you recommend for say someone my age, almost fifty, and worried about bone health, not touching dairy? What do you recommend other than broccoli? Well, if we're making the argument that you know milk is good for us because it has calcium, how did that calcium get in the milk? The cow didn't take a calcium supplement or drink so milk to make calcium. The cow made Grass. calcium out of eating greens, yeah. right? So broccoli would be one, but you're eating a lot of spinach. You're eating, you know, we were talking the other day and you said you have a lot of nuts, cashews, almonds, peanuts, sunflowers, uh, but really dark green leafy vegetables is the way to go. And they are, you know, the powerhouse of nutritional excellence. So really having a whole bunch of dark leaf, leafy greens, whether it's broccoli, spinach, kale, Brussels sprouts, uh, green beans, zucchini, all these things are loaded and loaded with not just calcium, but also magnesium and other minerals that we need that will work together to form those healthy bones. And look at the other lifestyle factors too. We minimize alcohol, we minimize soda, we minimize things that acidify the, the milieu in the body because when we have a more acidic milieu, that's when the bones are dissolved to neutralize some of that acid. So if we create a more alkaline body environment, if we do weight-bearing exercises the way that we're designed to be doing, to be running up and down hills with weights, you know, whether it's a backpack or ankle weights and wrist weights, that's when you're going to encourage that bone to get stronger. But if you're, you know, sitting in a chair all day working in an office, you can drink all the milk in the world and you're still going to get weak bones. Chapter four, optimal nutrition for optimal health. What is the essence of this chapter? The essence of optimal nutrition is eating a diet that is plant rich, but also eating the diet that you're designed to eat, which is unique for every single one of us. So without, it's not a one size fits all approach. Uh, we know what some of the superfoods are, and these are, like we mentioned, your greens. In some people, it'll be beans, it'll be things like onions and mushrooms and cruciferous vegetables, and certainly some nuts and seeds. Some fruit, not a whole lot of fruit, because you could go crazy with eating a lot of fruit and increase your blood sugar too. Uh, but it's going to be a nutrient-dense, plant-rich diet with, with some non-plant, some animal foods as suited for your particular body type and your particular metabolism, whether it's you know a couple of boiled eggs here and there or a little bit of chicken or fish, what, whatever suits you. People that go on a planned diet or evaluating planned diets, often get a little concerned about protein. And in the book you talk about, uh, there's a nice chart on what are the kinds of good quality proteins that you can get from plants. Can you share some of those? Yeah, it's really interesting. You know, everybody's worried about protein these days and because everybody wants to be a bodybuilder. But you look <laughs> at some of the strongest athletes in the world, you know, there are a lot of them are plant-based athletes. There are, there are athletes who are now in the Olympics, in the NFL, in the NBA, National Basketball Association, there's tons and tons of plant-based athletes that are coming up. So there are good plant sources of protein. Again, some of them would be the things that we mentioned. Believe it or not, spinach and broccoli actually have as more protein per calorie as beef. Really? So, yeah, because they don't have that many calories. Calorie. So you don't need like 50 tons of spinach, which you couldn't do. 
but you know your beans, lentils are really good sources of protein. Again, your nuts and seeds are fantastic sources of protein. And and yes, you can have, like I said earlier, you can have some animal foods too. <coughs> but just do it in proportion and do it in a way that's optimal for your body. And I'll just throw some here. I mean, the chia, hemp, quinoa, spirulina. The one that's my new favorite is moringa. Let's talk about the different diets because you've talked about plant-based. Your book's very much focused on plant-based. And yet... We've got a keto fad, and that's one of the things I wanted to get your perspective, but you have a nice chart in the book again, where you go through kind of Mediterranean, paleo, vegan, and the DASH diet. Now, the DASH diet has a great PR team, because I see it on my news alerts every day as, you know, the only diet still recommended as the best diet out there. Where do you come out on the variety of diets, including keto? How does someone completely clueless about these diets make the right decision? Well, first of all, I want to point out that, you know, we spend so much time in disharmony sort of fighting each other and fight, shooting at the enemy camp. But if you really look at it from a purist standpoint and you look at what all of these diets have in common is no processed food. They all talk about eating lots of plants, lots of greens, nuts and seeds. These are in common with all of them. So essentially, any of them would be better than the standard American diet, which is loaded with processed food, with salt, oil, and sugar added, and lots of factory farmed animals in your plate. So any of them would be better than that. And, and really, the key would be to find out what's suited best to your unique needs. I mean, looking at the keto fad, for example, and the way that's interpreted by most people is just it's become an extension of the Atkins diet that was very popular in the 90s and early 2000s. We had something like 20 million people doing the Atkins diet, which was essentially a processed meat, heavy bacon and sausage diet, which didn't turn out to be healthy at all. Um, but in a short term, you'll certainly lose weight if you're going ultra low carb, high fat. But you just have to keep in mind that there's no population in the history of mankind that ate this kind of diet on a long term and lived a long time and stayed disease-free. So yeah, if you want to do a crash diet and lose 30 pounds very quickly, you could do something like that, but then be careful to make sure that you get all the other micro and macronutrients, the phytonutrients, the plant nutrients that your body needs by eating a more balanced way, by incorporating some more plants in that diet and not just eating a bunch of coconut oil and ghee and not having anything else. Uh, you talk about the Mediterranean diet, and the, in the, again, in the purest sense, the Mediterranean diet is largely a plant-based diet with a little bit of fish or chicken, a little bit of cheese, again, based on the geographic location. So this is, as you said earlier, it has to do with who you are, where you live, what time of the year it is, what stage of life you're in, what's your activity level, and all those things would determine what's uniquely appropriate for each individual. But we should keep in mind that all of these diets, what they have in common is a whole bunch of unprocessed foods, mostly plants, right? And minimal amounts of other animal foods or oils, depending on which one you're looking at. All right, chapter five, water, the stuff of life. We don't talk about water enough, do we, Dr. Veg? We don't, and I had to include that in there, even though that was sort of an afterthought in the book because we were finished with the book, and I, I thought, oh, my God, we didn't even talk about water. 
two-thirds of your body weight is water. Every single biochemical process in the body helps happens in the medium of water. And similarly, you look at the planet around us, two-thirds of the planet is water as well. And, and so, you know, we, we're drinking, we start off the day with drinking coffee, which is actually a diuretic. It makes you more dehydrated. You know, you may or may not have some breakfast. You get all the way to lunch. You know, you're eating a sandwich. You maybe have a soda with it. And that's a diuretic too. The caffeine in that is actually going to make you uh, go to the bathroom. So we're starting the day in a deficit and we continue in this deficit until it's the end of the day and you realize, oh my God, I didn't drink any water today. I haven't even gone to the bathroom all day or I went and it's so dark. And so you, and, and then we get into a situation where then we can mistake that thirst mm-hmm. for hunger, right? So I'm actually thirsty, but I don't even know it. And instead I go for whatever is in front of me and, and nine times out of 10, it's gonna be some kind of junk food uh, that uh, somebody brought to the office or it's sitting at home and that's what I go for. So if we can stay hydrated, we can think more clearly, all the body functions work more properly, and we have a better sense of hunger versus satiety. So one little trick that I share with a, with a lot of my patients and folks is, if you're at a buffet, right, somewhere early in the meal, definitely before you're halfway through, have a big glass of water, mm-hmm. because now you're gonna get a, really get a sense of how full you are, because so many times we're eating and eating and eating, we, you get two or three plates at the buffet, and you know, you, you don't realize how full you are until you have a little bit of water and then whoop, everything just goes in there and swells up. So have that water early because it can also act as a fullness gauge and help you realize how much you've already eaten and how little you should you need to eat more of. And in fact, the digestive fires don't kick in if your body's well hydrated. So a lot of us have digestive issues because we're actually not hydrated. And then instead of fixing the digestive issue by hydrating, we take Tums or acid, you know, acid blockers or acid creators, and it's all just a big mess. Now you have a specific number. You say that when you wake up in the morning, your body's dehydrated by definition because of kind of the number of hours that you've been asleep and your body's been doing processes. What is the amount of water we should drink first thing as soon as we wake up? Well, you should have a big glass of water as soon as you wake up. A lot of people I've heard talk about, you know, squeezing half of an organic lemon or lime in that water to help wake up the digestive process. And for the whole day, I talk about having half of your body weight in ounces. So if you weigh 200 pounds, your goal should be roughly 100 ounces of water for the day. So half of your body weight in ounces, whatever your body weight is in pounds, you divide that by two, that many ounces of water. And talking about digestive fire, it's also important to look at the temperature of the water. Mm. Because, you know, here in America, people go for ice water and they'll half of their glass with ice and then have some water on top of it. And if you remember anything from basic physical chemistry uh, from high school, you'll remember that chemical reactions happen at a specific temperature and pressure. And if you change the temperature, that reaction isn't going to happen. And your digestion is a chemical process that is designed to happen at body temperature. But if you just had ice cold water, you lowered the contents of the stuff in your stomach by 10 or 20 or 30 degrees, that digestive process will just stop. It's not going to get digested properly. And you know what was crazy? I remember, I'm old enough now to remember, there was a time 
when drinking iced water was recommended to boost your metabolism. There was this all this great research on drink iced water to boost your metabolism. <laughs> now I think in hindsight, maybe that's why we all ended up with um, you know digestive crisis because in our 20s and 30s, we were all chugging down iced tea with our meal because we thought somehow that was going to negate the effects of, you know, that double cheeseburger that we were eating. Yeah, that's so backwards. I think somebody was thinking about the fact that your body would have to expend some energy to bring your temperature back up if you lowered it by right. you know, a certain number of degrees. And that's fine, but you could probably do that better by going in a hypothermic chamber or jumping into a, a pool of cold water or taking a cold shower. Exactly. But uh, it's probably not a good idea to lower the temperature of the contents of your stomach. Definitely not with meals. And you also have a very strong opinion about the type of water because, again, unfortunately, we know that there's been a lot of um, crisis around the water coming out of our taps. Um, they're found Viagra. They found antibiotics. I mean, it's actually quite disturbing to think of what's you know, ending up in our drinking water but you're not necessarily a fan of bottled waters either. So share a little bit about, you know, what does Dr. Veg drink every, every day? What kind of water do you drink? Well, we're lucky enough to live in a community where the municipal water is, is pretty clean and has good standards. And I would say that unless you're living in Flint, Michigan, where there's a lead problem or some other part of the country where you know that the water is contaminated, probably your tap water is going to be safer than what's in bottled water because believe it or not, the bottled water industry is not regulated. So they're not looking at contaminants. They're not looking at heavy metals. They're not looking at whatever else is in that water. Not to mention that we have, you know, islands bigger than the state of Texas of plastic floating around oh, in the yeah. ocean. Oh, and awful. so to not generate so much more toxins and plastics, which we're going to make our way, make their way back into our uh, food chain, right? If you think that eating salmon is really healthy and you're getting it from the ocean, where these fish are eating up all these plastic bottles where they somehow they love to lay their eggs in these plastic uh, bags and bottles that are floating around in the ocean. Um, so, all, so it makes its way back to us. It goes back to the idea of harmony and of how we're all interconnected. So what I do to the environment or the people around me is going to come right back in a karmic circle. Karma. And come back me. Terrible karma, what we're doing to the environment. Chapter six, the crucial role of exercise. Ooh, stuff that almost nobody likes to me. Tell us a little about the importance of exercise in your turbo metabolism model. Exercise is so, so critical. And if, 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 if exercise was a pill with all the benefits that exercise has from mental health to physical health, to bone health, to circulation, to cardiovascular, to gastrointestinal, to the metabolism, this would be a blockbuster drug. And it's the closest thing we have to the panacea of youth, to the fountain of youth, really. The youngest looking people aren't the ones that are eating some fancy organic food from Whole Foods. They're probably the ones that are very, very physically active. Again, you look at the blue zones, you look at the most long-lived populations in the world, and one thing that they all have in common, right on top of one of the things that, that's a high priority in their life is to be physically active. You'll see people in their 90s who or walking from place to place, or riding around on their bicycles to go get fresh vegetables from the farmer's market. And specifically when you think about turbo metabolism, exercise is your best friend, especially weight-bearing exercise. We talked about weight-bearing exercise for bone health, but the other amazing thing that weight-bearing exercise does is encourages muscle growth 
or at least prevents the loss of muscle as we get older. And muscle is your best friend in boosting metabolism. Why? Because muscles burn energy. Even when we're sitting here, you and I are talking to each other, or you could be sleeping uh, or in a coma even, and your muscle is your best friend because it's burning energy at rest, just like your brain, your heart, your kidneys, your digestive system is working, even when you're not physically active. Similarly, your skeletal muscle is this underappreciated, underutilized ally that we have in the quest towards turbo metabolism. What is the resting metabolic rate? Because that's really important for most of us to understand, given that that contributes, I think, to the majority of the energy that we burn in a given day. Right. So you so you look at the total daily daily energy expenditure of the day, and I have a nice pie chart for that in the book. Seventy mm-hmm. percent of that is made up by a resting metabolic rate, and this is the energy that's burned just for. You can say that your car is parked, but it's an idle, right? You've got the ignition turned on, but it's just sitting there in front of your house. That's the resting metabolic rate of the car. And so the activities that we do just to stay alive, again, breathing, heartbeat, the digestive system, the liver is working, the brain is working, the muscles are working. All these things are happening even when we're at rest. That's what makes up the resting metabolic rate. And you can calculate that RMR or resting metabolic rate for a person, and it'll be dependent on their height, weight, gender, uh, and age. And it'll make up 70% of their total daily energy expenditure, which means if my total daily energy expenditure is, say, 2,000 calories, Mm. 1,400 calories are just my resting metabolic rate. That means I'm going to burn 1,400 calories even if you chained me to this chair and I sat here for 24 hours, I would still have burnt 1,400 calories. Why? Because my body is expending energy for those activities just to stay alive. My brain, my breathing, my heartbeat, my digestive system, my muscles, my kidneys that are filtering, all these processes will still be going on even if I'm chained to this chair. So that's And out of all of those components, the only one that you can really modify is the mass of your skeletal muscle. And the way that we'll build more skeletal muscle is by doing more weight-bearing exercise. That's why exercise is your best friend for turbo metabolism. And that's what explains the difference, you know, when you see kind of two identical people, one can eat twice as much as the other. It's because one person just has a higher resting metabolic rate. And that might be a combination of the fact that they walk every morning and their body just automatically burns more the rest of the day or that they've been weightlifting, doing some weight-bearing exercises. And so while they look exactly like this other person, their body has a more muscular skeletal structure and hence burns more calories. And so um, I love that you dedicated uh, a brilliantly written chapter, by the way. There's a lot of great information. One of the things that I love that you write about is the, um, I, I think you call it a fallacy, but really I think it's just the way our brain wants to justify eating that muffin. You know, you talk about that most people think like if I eat a muffin, calories from a medium-sized muffin can be burned by walking a mile. And you're like, no, no, no. It's 33 minutes of jogging or 77 minutes of cycling. And it's such like a jolt, like, oh, my God, like I need to rethink this muffin now because I thought I'd be fine. Yeah. So that's just a reminder for people not to assume that exercise, you know, gives you license to eat whatever you want. Really, your most benefit is going to come from being very mindful of how you eat, but exercise is important because it has all these hundreds of other health benefits, not the least of which is boosting your resting metabolic rate, 
by helping you preserve and also grow skeletal muscle. Now, you have a four-month exercise program. What have you found to work, to inspire and motivate people to be consistent in their exercise routine? Well, so what we found in from, from successful exercisers, what they have in common is, you know, most of them have a dedicated time where they have some structured physical exercise in addition to trying to be active and finding excuses to move whenever you can. For that structured exercise, if you have a fixed time and place to do it, that generally tends to make it happen more likely. What we also find that people have in common that are regular exercisers are that they do it in the earlier part of the day because for sure, in general, we have more energy earlier in the day and we're more likely to get it done. We have fewer excuses rather than waiting till the end of the day when we're already tired and we might have other competing uh, priorities. So those are some of the things that, that can happen. And I have some tips and tricks of how to be more physically active through the course of the day as well, like walking meetings, like getting up and talking to someone instead of picking up the phone or texting them, like getting up and moving between segments of your favorite TV show or when the ads are playing. Of course, these days we can fast forward the ads if you're you know, on Netflix or using a DVR, but in the old days, ads would be a time when you might get up and move around. Or if you're a reader, you get up and move after so many pages. And, and when you do that, you actually will you'll enjoy the reading or whatever activity that you're doing much more if you're taking little active breaks in, in between as well. I switched to Audible, so I read while walking. And oh, yeah. I don't read, obviously, I just listen to books now. I think you're right. I think the, the key here is in sitting down and committing back to your first chapter, right? You need to first commit that you're going to bring exercise into your life and then to really decide what that pace is going to be. And maybe it's just five minutes on day one. Right. Maybe it's 10 minutes on day two and maybe it's 15 minutes on day three, right? And until you get to 30 minutes. And at that point, you're doing things like maybe once a week, I just listen to a book as I walk and another for those who love to talk on the phone like my mom you know talk on the phone while walking so right. you could have a nice one-hour chat with your friend while walking you won't even know where the time goes and she adopted that and and it's been great uh, my dad found a friend to go for walks with so now they just go together for their walks so there are a lot of wonderful ways to bring exercise into your life I think it's the biggest question always is like you got to commit that I'm going to do it and then you'll figure it out um, chapter seven, control stress before it controls you. How are we going to control stress and why that, is it a problem? That was one of my most, I had most, the most fun with this, this chapter, the stress chapter and the sleep chapter that, that's coming right after it. And yeah, it's because again, the mind is the basis of what the body does. And, you know, we're living in a world where we're constantly in that fight or flight mode. We're constantly operating at the level of the reptilian brain where it's all about you know, how do I get out of this situation or how do I argue with this person and make my point or win this debate? How do I convince you to, you know, give me money or, or buy my pitch, whatever I'm trying to convince you to do? Oh, and I've got this deadline and I've got this other report. I've got this book to complete. I've got this chapter that I, that's due. And there's always deadline after deadline after deadline. We're just running, running, running from the moment that you wake up until we fall asleep. And sometimes that's really late. So having our own techniques, our own methods, and we've talked through this interview about meditation. So that I you know, talk about the different types of meditation and how it's not a one size fits all approach. It, you could be someone that does really well with a concentrative meditation versus mindfulness versus flow meditation, which could be 
movement, playing a musical instrument, playing a sport, whatever it is, finding your own outlets, finding your own uh, ways in which you can reconnect with that, that space, that place of peace and quiet and bliss and happiness and light within you that we have within each and every one of us that remains sort of shrouded because we've got so many blankets, so many layers covering that light. So really go inside every now and then and check in with that light. Ideally, you know, when you get up in the mornings, you just spend the first 5, 10, 15, 20 minutes doing that. I try to do that, and it's just, just the most precious, most wonderful part of my, my daily routine to have that time of peace and quiet where there is no disturbance, there is no deadline, there is no rush to see who's been texting me or emailing me through the course of the night because I need to check in with myself first. And then I'm in a place of really giving my best to the world as well. I love it. Um, I love this chart that you have on life events and mean value of stress. And um, just for those who don't have access to the book yet, I'll tell you that the number one is death of a spouse with a mean value of 100. And uh, the rank number 43 is minor violations of the law, and that has a mean value of 11. But I got to point some of these really funny ones. Marriage is 50. Are you saying married people just have a lot more stress? Is that what you're saying, Dr. Vinge? Well, getting along and, and interacting in a positive way with another human being, as fulfilling as it may be, is, is also a bunch of work. And yeah, I think in this particular questionnaire, they looked at getting married. And that is definitely a stressor because it's, it's, yes. it's a change, right? You can, if yes. you're a single person, you can do whatever the heck you want and wake up and go to bed and whenever you feel like and snore and fart, you know, to your heart's content. Uh, but when you have another person that, that you care about, you know, that changes the whole equation. And, and at the same time, it can be very fulfilling, too. We also know that married people live longer. The ones that are in positive, fulfilling relationships live longer and are generally healthier. Or as the joke goes, they just feel like they're living longer. <laughs> they just feel like they're living longer. No, I will say this. I think... If you apply the same framework that we've been talking about, which is mindfulness, awareness to marriage, you can transform it from a stress-inducing experience because you're constantly trying to either outwit or upwin or get your way or get away from doing something to a truly pleasurable soulmate connection where now you have a trusted beautiful relationship that actually releases stress because you know you have someone who loves you unconditionally and is always there for you but i think that transformation happens only when someone both sides are willing to make that a priority because it won't happen on it on itself so we know that everyone who's listening to this and has a metabolic syndrome disease or chronic disease is already getting stressed going, oh my God, Dr. Vijay is telling me all these things to do. Now I'm going to go do these things. I need to figure out how to have a four-month exercise plan. And so to all of you, I'm going to say this. Stress is something you choose to have in your life. And you can, at this moment, instead of feeling overwhelmed and stressed, say, I'm not going to be. I'm just listening to a fun interview about what I need to do to get healthy. And you know what? I'm looking forward to this. This is so exciting because I'm finally going to be off meds and I'm going to be healthy like I was in my 20s. 
So it's just, it's all in how you approach everything in life. There's a couple of great, great sections. And for those who have not read the book, I really highly recommend you do. One is called Creating Your Senses, The Stop Method. So definitely pick up the book so you can learn how to kind of stop what you're doing, take a breath, observe your emotions, and then proceed uh, with the right emotion. So you're not overreacting because a lot of us tend definitely tend to overreact. And of course, there's the whole concept of overreacting and then overeating. So do read the, the book for that. And then I love the whole section, Dr. Vidge, on body intelligence techniques, because it talks a lot about what my Ayurvedic practitioner told me to do when I got very, very sick. And um, it's almost a one-to-one mapping. So again, thank you for for sharing this information because definitely sitting and eating, sitting and eating in a calm environment and taking a little break after you've finished your meal because your body now has to transform a completely foreign substance. Sadhguru calls it, you know, you're eating a banana and it becomes you. Talk about magic. And for that magic to happen flawlessly, you need to support the reactions that are required to make that magic happen. And in today's day and age, we're basically literally getting in there and interrupting the process. And then we wonder why we're sick. So I I felt like I learned a lot again from this chapter. All right, chapter eight, sleep, a vital component of health. Says who? My teenage daughter says, mom, you don't need more than three to four hours of sleep and I can do it any time of the day. What do I say to her, Dr. Veg? Sleep is the most neglected master lever of health. It's critically important to every metabolic function. It's important to mental health. It's important to really staying in a state of balance and making the right decisions, your creativity, uh, everything is affected when we're not sleeping. There's a reason why we spend a third of our lives sleeping, right? Humans have been on the planet for over 7 million years. And you should tell her you're not of this. Humans have been on the planet for 7 million years. And if it wasn't important, we would have evolved by now not to have to sleep at all. But we know from research that the majority of people still need roughly eight hours of sleep a night. And it's in that non-dreaming, non-REM sleep that the body resets itself. That's when the garbage trucks and the cleaning crews come out and they clean out the garbage out of our brains and we consolidate our memory that goes from little sticky notes into the long-term storage. That's where creativity is maintained. That's where appetite is regulated that's when cancer cells that were that we're all producing every day that's when they're detected and destroyed and we would mess with this process at our own peril but if she's a teenager she's this is her process this is her time to experiment and learn for herself just give her some time and Mm -hmm. she'll figure it out so we as adults have a lot of sleep hygiene issues and you talk about a few of those So for someone who's having a hard time sleeping, which I can guarantee you is like 90% of my audience, and it could be a combination of, oh, I'm a night person. I've heard that over and over again. I'm a night owl. I like to sleep really late and because I'm sort of retired or I'm not really working. You know, I sleep in like 10, 11, and that's fine. Ayurveda doesn't agree with that. Ayurveda believes you really should be in bed by 10 because your body cleansing processes kind of kick in at that time and you're interfering with how your body's circadian rhythm functions. But for someone who's either not sleeping because they're a night owl or they're not sleeping because they're just stressed or they're not sleeping because they just can't stay asleep. Like they fell asleep, they woke up 15 minutes later and they can't fall asleep. 
what are some tips and tricks to getting them to go back to sleep and sleep through the night? Well, some simple things first. I mean, the first thing would be to take the television out of your bedroom. Mm -hmm. Take your iPad, your laptop, your cell phone out of the bedroom. Put them on silent or turn them off. Put them to bed in another room, just like you're in bed. You know, put them on the charger in their crib in another room so that they can rest and recharge as well. Uh, you know, don't do anything that's super activating that makes you upset or angry or worried or anxious within the last couple of hours of the day before you go to bed. So really having a bedtime routine, much like you, you would for a baby that you're taking care of, right? You give them, when, when we've had children, you know, you, you give them a warm shower, you would maybe massage their skin, maybe tell them a bedtime story, do something that's calming and relaxing where the lights are dim, you've got some soft music playing. So you've got this whole routine for the last hour or two of the day for your baby. Well, you need to treat yourself like that baby, like that best friend that you that you took care of, that you took care of that baby with tenderness and love, and you deserve that same tenderness and love for yourself. So taking out all those distractions, having a bedtime routine, and in spite of that, if you slept for 15 minutes or an hour and you find yourself waking up and tossing and turning, it's okay to get out of bed. Just have bed for sleep and intimacy. Otherwise, get out of bed, leave the room, go to another part of the house where you do something calming. That doesn't involve screens and bright lights, but maybe reading a calming book or doing some meditation or doing some activity that you find relaxing, whether it's knitting or playing the guitar or you know, doing something that helps you relax and then come back when you feel like you're getting drowsy again. And that these simple sleep hygiene techniques work nine times out of 10. I think we overuse sleeping pills and medications and over rely on them just like we do for other conditions. But just like with getting turbo metabolism, getting healthy sleep, which is the basis for turbo metabolism, is something that's well within our reach. What about nutritional deficiencies that contribute to sleep issues? So I've heard both vitamin D and magnesium can be a cause. So I had huge, severe sleep issues. And um, either I couldn't go to sleep or I would wake up at three without fail, burning up, hiving, etc. And for me personally, what worked amazingly well was magnesium actually rubbed uh, on my lower back or on my legs and arms and vitamin D drops. I would take them right before I went to sleep. Um, now, it could be a placebo effect. You know, placebo effects are what close to 40, 45% of a lot of the healing. But what have you observed in your clinical practice with respect to nutritional deficiencies and sleep issues? Well, magnesium is a big one. And actually, magnesium supplements work really well for insomnia and other sleep disorders, too. And you're right. There are some topical magnesium preparations that absorb really nicely through the skin. And they've been shown to be beneficial for sleep. Vitamin D deficiencies involved, and by the way, the majority of us are vitamin D deficient because A, we don't have that much ultraviolet light coming at the latitude that we live in in North America. And even if we were, we don't spend as much time outside. And even those that do spend time outside are wearing multiple layers that block the sun. So most of the people that I test do have vitamin D deficiency. And vitamin D deficiency is implicated in many, many metabolic diseases, not just bone health but uh, also things like type 2 diabetes and cancers. Um, and not specifically, I haven't seen it related directly in clinical trials, at least, to insomnia. But certainly, if it works for someone, it's, it's worth a try. And there's also herbal supplements, too, that we don't have to get into. But 
you know, supplementing with uh, things like valerian root or melatonin occasionally uh, could be things that work for some people as well. All right, chapter nine, battling environmental enemies. So what enemies are we facing at this point environmentally and why should we care? We're, we're really swimming in a sea of environmental chemicals, right? So you'd look at cancer and something like 80 to 90% of cancer is actually caused by environmental toxins. I would make the same argument for autoimmune diseases because these toxins also impair the integrity of the gut. And so it's allowing these toxins to get in and then activate the immune system. Some common ones to think about, uh, especially if you're a woman, there was there's a article that I was reading that on average, a, a woman in North America is exposed to 90 different chemicals even before she leaves the home, yes. whether it's from shampoo, hairspray, moisturizer, Skin, makeup, right here. Exactly. lipstick, nail polish, it, you know, the list goes on and on. And then you run to Starbucks and you're getting your coffee that's in a cardboard uh, container that may have some chemicals lining the inside of it. Plastic lid the plastic lid then and or there's a straw or a plastic thing that you stir it with and then they give you a receipt the receipt is on this heat sensitive paper that's loaded with bpa yes. bpa is uh basically an endocrine disruptor it disrupts the functioning of the hormones in your body right you get in your car your car the new car smell that everybody loves is the smell of plastic that's filling up the cabin of the car that we're inhaling, we're touching the steering wheel, everything in the car is, is synthetic materials. Then you go to the gas station and you're filling gas. Now you've got petroleum and all the additives from the petroleum. You get one more BPA loaded receipt in your hands. You get back in the car with your Starbucks in one hand and your cookie in the other, and you're eating it with the same hands that you've got petroleum and BPA on. It just goes on and on and on. And so some simple things that we can do are eat, lower on the food chain. I try to never get a receipt whenever I go, whether I'm getting gas or I'm at a restaurant and they try to hand me the receipt, I step back like they're trying to give me the plague and you know people are taken aback. But I, I, I always say, please toss it for me. So that's that's my, you know, the moment I say, now you can toss it for me. Thank you. I won't right. touch a receipt. Yeah. Right. Um, and then we were talking earlier about dairy or the higher we eat up the food chain, Right, all the environmental toxins are getting concentrated as we go higher and higher up the food chain. So eating lower on the food chain, buying from your local farmer's market, buying organic when you can, fresh ingredients, less processed, less packaged foods, stay away from plastics, right? And, and really start thinking about these things. And as we become more aware, we find out that we really are swimming in a sea of toxins, but much of it's coming from our food. So I had colon cancer at 35, and then I had my second big health crisis at 45. And um, some of the functional and integrative medicine doctors kept saying, there's going to be some kind of a toxic overload that you're facing because you keep ending up with diseases that we know are linked to toxic overload. Mm -hmm. And Dr. Bidge, I was horrified when I started making the list because one of the recommendations was go home and make a list of everything that you're using in a given day from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to bed. And so I made a list and then I researched. And of course we live in a golf course community and I contacted the local um, community and I tried to find out what was being sprayed. And of course they were spraying glyphosate and 
18 other incredibly toxic chemicals that have not been tested on humans yet and are yet being allowed to be sprayed willy-nilly around us. But in addition to that, from the toothpaste that I was using to the soap, to the foundation, I literally, I, I sat down and cried one day because I was like, oh my God, I'm going to have to replace everything. And I did. And so anyone who's saying, but it's so expensive, it is not. You can actually do a calculation of what it would cost for you to switch and you realize you'll actually spend a lot less. That people talk about the cost of, you know, you're talking about cosmetics and household products, but even food. And you look at what percentage of your total household budget you're spending on food in the United States is something like 10%. Exactly. But we spend 20 to 30% on, on sick care. And you look at other parts of the world, you look in Europe, <clears throat> they spend a lot more on food but a lot less on healthcare. So you can choose, right? You can skimp on food and spend more at the hospital, <coughs> or you can spend a little more on food and the things that you're putting in and on your body and be healthier. Profound. All right, chapter 10, superfoods and supplements. This is gonna be my favorite subject because I've been testing on myself thousands of supplements and herbs to the, um, horror of the family around me. They're like, what are you doing? You keep testing these crazy things on yourself. Maybe I don't need to test anymore. Maybe Dr. Richard can tell me what are the good ones that you found? Actually, you do need to test because each and every one of us is different. And I, I put some very general lists in there that, that you can read to the listeners, but every one of us is going to be unique and different. You know, we know for cancer fighting properties, like the cruciferous vegetables are really strong. Beans are really good for some people because they help their prebiotic foods and they help the growth of healthy bacteria in the gut. You know, there's really no debate that the dark leafy greens are probably superfoods for most of us. And, and there's something that's in common with all the different healthy diets that we can think about, whether it's the plant-based diet, the Mediterranean, the DASH diet, um, the healthy versions of paleo, and they all emphasize lots and lots of you know, green leafy vegetables. And then we there's some talk about supplements too. We already alluded to magnesium and vitamin D and the omega-3 fish oils. <clears throat> and that's all detailed a lot more in that chapter. Let's talk a little bit about the gut. So more and more research is now coming out that clearly indicates that the gut has a far bigger role to play in our health and our life and our mind than we recognize. Where do you come out on the gut and eating for the gut? It does. And we have 10 times more bacteria cells in our body or bacterial DNA in our body than we do human DNA. So there's this profound interaction right from the DNA level all the way to the chemical and hormonal interactions that these gut bacteria are producing things, even neurotransmitters, right? I'm in a bad mood. I'm feeling happy. I'm feeling sad. I'm feeling anxious. It could be because of whatever the gut bacteria in my intestines decided to do today, or they didn't decide to do, they're doing it based on what food I put in and what type of bacteria I'm promoting the growth of. So we can, we, this is just a whole mystery that's being unraveled. And I think the next decade is going to be very exciting in medicine because a lot of this will become more clear, but we're already starting to see some of the pieces of the puzzle come through in that, for example, if you eat more, blueberries, you promote a certain kind of bacteria that is 
concerned with cancer fighting and maintaining a healthy weight in your body versus a different type of gut bacteria that you might promote by eating more broccoli or more rice. And so in the medicine of the future, we can precisely tell someone, hey, you tend to be more anxious, so you should be eating this kind of food so that we can promote this particular strain of the 10,000 different strains of gut bacteria that are known to us right now. And we can precisely target certain bacteria for certain activities or actions or results in the body based on the person's individual health condition and also their Ayurvedic or personality type and come up with some precise recommendations rather than one size fits all, which none of this is. Buddhist medicine, what a concept. Um, what do you, where do you come out on multivitamins versus taking certain vitamins in higher doses? So for example, a vegan taking just a higher dose of B12 because we know that they're going to be deficient in that versus someone just popping a multivitamin. Right, so I'm gonna go back to the idea that each of us is biochemically unique and individual. And you know, you might take a multivitamin and it's gonna give you a false sense of assurance that you're taking, it's sort of like an umbrella insurance policy against a little, you know, it's like a sampler pack where you're getting a little bit of everything versus getting a whole lot of what you really need or want, right? You go to a restaurant and, and you go off, get the sample plate and you're getting a little bit of 50 different things and you only like two out of the 50 and the other 48 you didn't even enjoy versus going to the restaurant and really knowing that you like this particular thing that they make really well and it's good for you and it's healthy and it tastes good. And you would want a whole lot of that specific thing. So yeah, targeting uh, supplements, but for the most part, getting your nutrition, whether it's the macronutrients, but also the micronutrients from food is going to be the way to go to eat more, more colorful food, to have all the colors of the rainbow on your plate, to have four cups of fresh vegetables, to have 40 different plants in a week, you're gonna get all the nutrients that you need that way. And then you can target what might be missing, such as, like you said, B12 in a, in a vegan or calcium or iron, uh, versus just take everybody taking multivitamin. I don't think that does much other than make the vitamin manufacturers wealthy and give you a false sense of assurance. I think one of the most important everyone should do is get tested for their deficiencies. All right, we have been chatting with Dr. Pankaj Vij about his amazing book, Turbo Metabolism. Every chronic disease is reversible if you follow the recommendations and strategies. Dr. Vij, any parting advice for those who are about to embark on this wonderful healing journey? Well, just know that you have the capacity to heal yourself. You need to acquire the knowledge, the wisdom, and the resources to make to take that first step on the journey. Rome wasn't built in a day. Take that first step. This is well within your reach. Take your health back. You have one life. Your body is a temple. Live in it and enjoy it. Thank you so much. And Thank for the you. rest of you, I'm going to see you on another one of these interviews. Stay smiling. That's a wrap. Share your love with a five-star review and get show notes at healthbootcamps.com. Connect with us on Health Bootcamps Facebook and Twitter. Also, don't forget to check out other great interviews and subscribe to the Get Healthier podcast today.